Well, good. Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 27. We'll get right into the message this morning. Hebrews 9, verse number 27. Very short verse, but a powerful one. A very short verse, but a powerful one. I'm privileged to be able to stand in place of Pastor Lytell, of course, preaching. We have Pastor Steve Ludwig, our other assistant pastor, who's going to be preaching for us tonight. We're very much looking forward to that and how he's going to share something from God with us. And what I like about Pastor Steve's messages is that somehow his ministry of his his jail ministry that he does always ties into that and it gives uh, him a good perspective on a lot of things because of that. So I encourage you to come on out tonight and hear Brother Steve. Hebrews 9.27, it says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die... But after this, the judgment. Powerful verse. Let's read it again. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. The average person does not like to think about death. There's people, I assume, in this room who don't like to think about death. Maybe they don't mind so much the death of somebody else or someone we don't know about, but the fact of death themselves, that they are going to die someday. And people avoid at all costs thinking about their death or the day of their death. They don't like thinking about it at all. But occasionally we are forced, we are forced into thinking about it and those thoughts have to come into our mind and they either, it encourages us, those of us who know the Lord, or it discourages us. Funerals are one time where people are forced into thinking about death. A few months ago, I had the opportunity to do a funeral for someone who had been a, a distant friend, we'll call it that, a distant friend of Gospel Baptist Church, Gospel Baptist Christian School, and a, a father had passed away. And you could see on the faces as I entered the house and began to conduct the little memorial service that we did that they had not thought about death in a long time. This last Thursday, we had the memorial service for Sandy Nelson's brother who passed away, and the people that were in this room had to come to the point where they thought about death, not just the death of John Forrester, but that someday that they are going to die as well. And that thought shakes people to the core that they are going to die. COVID has gotten a lot of people thinking, a lot of people thinking. Not just here in America, but as you can see in the whole world. And the world, by and large, is overtaken by fear. Bible-believing Christians, not so much. But the world in general, the lost world, has been overtaken by fear of COVID. Does that mean we need to be um, foolish about it? No. I'm not going to go run out in traffic because I'll probably get hit by a car. All right? I think we need to have some common sense about it. But... But what I'm trying to get at is the fear aspect that many people have because of it. And they're not, the reason they they are afraid of COVID is because they are afraid of death. And generally speaking, at the beginning of this, we thought that the death rate was going to be much higher than what it is. I think we all agree that that's, that's kind of the assumption that it was. And people, even Christians, began fearing of getting COVID because they feared death. But in one way or another, 
I can be somewhat thankful that COVID has swept across, across the country and swept across the world. So that's a crazy thing to say. It is crazy, but it's true. Why? Because people have been forced into a predicament where they have to think about death. And I've noticed when I'm witnessing and I'm evangelizing, I'm going door to door, I'm going out and visiting kids on bus route and teenagers, I've noticed that people are more open now than ever. Why? Because life's not just all, you know, normal. Nothing to worry about. Because there's something imminent that could happen to you, and you have to think about death. And so in that regard, it's helped evangelism. When we go door-to-door, people are more open now for you to talk to them about the gospel than they ever have been. I would say maybe in my life, maybe after 9-11 would be another one. Amazing. But people do not want to think about death. Because it's not just the death, it's what lies after death. What lies after death? Are people just afraid of the great unknown? I don't believe that for a moment. Maybe a few. I don't believe that for a moment. I believe that people are afraid of death because they are afraid of the second part of that verse. They're appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. That's what they are afraid of right there. Now, are they all thinking about the same God that we believe in? I would say no. But one, one Bible scholar said something like this. He said that anywhere you go in the world, you will find people that have religion, that have religion, and in one way or another, they believe that they have offended a God out there. Many different gods, many different religions that people have, but they all believe in one way or another that they have offended a higher being, somebody that's great, greater than they are. And as you travel around the world, you can go to any people group and you can find that they believe in something and in the sacrifices they do or in the offerings that they do or the way that they live, they believe that they have offended a God some way, somehow, and that they have to somehow make restitution with that God. The person who wrote that said, you can go, there was a a couple tribes way down in Africa that they had had no contact, as we know, to the outside world. And for a brief moment, they thought that they discovered a, a tribe of people who had no religious belief. But after further investigation, they found that that was not true. They as well felt that they had offended some sort of a higher power and that they needed to make restitution because of it. What is that? Why do we feel offended? Because we're sinners by nature. We are sinners by nature. It doesn't take much for us to believe that we have done wrong. It doesn't take a whole lot of convincing. We are, we are born this way. We aren't taught to be bad. We're bad by nature. And because of that sin, it makes us feel that after this life is over, that we are going to face a higher power. And we know that that higher power is none other than God, Jehovah. But that's what they're afraid of. And because of this subconsciousness, the other day, last door to door that we went on to, myself and uh, Mike Tamara and myself, we went and one lady, we knocked on the door and she was supposedly a Catholic. And she 
we began to talk to her. And by the way, if you've never been door-to-door, you got to go door-to-door. You just have to. You have to go door-to-door and go with somebody that is very good at doing a survey. We have a little survey. It gets people talking and gets people thinking. And on those questions, there are very thought-provoking questions that long after we leave, they still think about those things. And we were going there, and we began to take the survey. And people say, sure, I'll take it. And then as soon as we start asking the questions, their facial expressions drop because they're thinking about a topic and thinking about a subject that they don't want to, about death. Do you believe that there's a heaven and a hell? They say, usually they say, yes, I do. If you were to die right now, where do you think you'd go? And a look of horror comes on their face, and they, everyone, they try to make up a reason why they should get to heaven. And we began to talk with this, this woman who was a Catholic, and she said, you know, I really don't, I try not to think about that as much as I can. At least she was honest. She says, I try not to think about death as much as I can. And what's going to happen? I said, what, what's going to happen to you after you die? I don't know. I try not to think about it. Wow. That's where people are at today. But as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. And for the Christian, why does the Christian fear judgment? It's like when you were a child, if you can remember that far back. When you were a child, and your dad says, son or daughter, I'm going to work. I've got some jobs for you to do. I want you to rake the yard, or I want you to mow the yard, or I want you to clean the dishes. I want you to clean the house, make sure your room is spotless, you name it. And of course, the day goes on, and you say, well, I've got time. I don't have to do that right now. And so you go out, and you go, and you play with your friends when, you're not supposed, when you should be doing those things. And, soon, and then the time begins to, to keep going on and on, and hours seem to roll by, and you put it off and put it off, and you haven't done what your father wanted you to do, and you know that he is coming through the door any moment. You do not rejoice at his return. You do not rejoice seeing your father. You are terrified and you are horrified because you have not done what you were supposed to do. And many Christians, they live their lives in fear of meeting God and facing this judgment because they haven't been living to the will of God. They've been out like the kid runs around with his friends. We've been out running around with the world doing what they want to do, not doing the will of the father. But someday... Each one of us, as plainly and as clearly as I see you and you see me, we are going to see God. And we are going to stand before Jesus Christ, and we are going to face at this judgment. So there's two judgments I would like to talk about this morning. Two judgments. The first one, which I believe is referred to here in Hebrews, the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 is the key verse for this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear. And by the way, it's going to be you and you alone. And it's going to be me and me alone. We're not standing with other people. We're standing by ourselves. That's a scary thought in and of itself. We get, we, we, I have, uh, of course, being the principal of the school, I get to deal with all the fun issues. Kids being disobedient, you name it. And immediately what everybody wants, all the kids want to go to is, well, so-and-so is doing this and -and so-and-so is doing that. That's a bad habit to get into. 
That's not the, that's not the way it's going to be when we stand before God. He's going to be looking at us and us alone. It's not going to be our neighbors. It's not, well, I was the best among this church body here. That's not going to cut it. It's a scary thought for some, but it's a joyful thought for others. James and James 2.6, um, it talks about the judgment seat as well. And the two words that are, that are used to refer to the judgment seat of Christ are the Bema seat. You may have referred to that, heard of that before, the Bema seat of Christ. And the other one, um, the other word is criterion, where we get the word criteria, like criteria from which you are judged. And so those are kind of the two words. But generally, we use the word Bema, the Bema seat. And at this judgment, this is for believers only, by the way, believers only. And at this judgment, this has the idea of reward, reward, reward. Think of it like this. This is a reference, by the way, back to uh, the, like the Greek games, the Olympic games that were played back in this time when Paul the Apostle uh, would have been writing this. And during the games, there'd be a, a high seat where there would be a judge watching every move that happens. And while the games would go on, maybe the chariots would race or people would run in a foot race or they would throw a discus, you name it, that judge would be sitting there looking and watching. And after the game was over, all the contestants would come and they would stand before this judge and he would give out the rewards for what they had done. It was not a time that he went and he nitpicked every little thing. Oh, you didn't do this right. Oh, you were in last place. Uh Uh-huh, you don't get anything. That really wasn't the idea behind it. The idea behind it was reward, reward. And the judgment seat of Christ, I believe, has that same idea. It's not a time where I believe God's looking to drop the hammer on believers who have lived their lives wrong, but it kind of happens that way when we don't have anything to show for our lives for Christ. It's like when we have an awards banquet ceremony for our basketball players or our football players or our volleyball players here at school, we have a time where we reward them and we give rewards for the most valuable player. We give rewards for the most improved, maybe the person with the best defense or the best offense. We have those rewards, but there is always children there who do not get any rewards. By the way, we don't uh, give everybody a trophy here at Gospel. We don't do that. We don't believe in that. It's not the Bible way. And consequently, though, the people who are getting reward, yes, oh, they feel great that they've gotten something, but the people who are sitting there that maybe didn't give their best effort, they didn't, they didn't get anything. They didn't, win a, they didn't win an award. And so consequently, yes, they do feel bad because of that, ta- that takes place. But I don't believe that we should go to the judgment seat of Christ thinking about every little wrong thing that we've done unless you've lived your life bad. You haven't lived pleasing to the Lord. So it is associated with judgment. But when does it take place? I believe it takes place after the rapture. After the rapture, the reason for that is, is because in Revelation chapter 9, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we see the bride of Christ, which is us. We're clothed in fine linen and in our fine garments, and we are presented to Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb, which happens before the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ to the earth for the millennial reign of Christ. And so I believe that it happens during that place. Who's in attendance? Again, I said only believers, the unsaved. They are awaiting another judgment, which we're going to talk about in just a few moments.
What are we going to be judged on when we're there? Well, I don't believe sin, sin is going to be the main topic of discussion. I don't believe sin is going to be the main topic of discussion. The judgment that I think is going to take place has to do with the glory of God, the glorification of God. 2 Corinthians Second Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether they be good or bad. It is for the glorification of God. It has to do with what is acceptable and what is worthless. Many people are going to stand before God and they are going to have nothing to show for their lives. And it is going to be an utter waste. 1 Corinthians 3 Starting in verse 12 says, Now if any man build up on this foundation gold, silver, precious, stu- precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built there, thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. The picture that we're getting here is that when we stand before God, I believe Jesus Christ at this judgment seat, that all of our works are going to be put into a pile, and that God's eternal fire is going to come to consume it. And the only things that were done, I believe, in the power of God are the only things that are going to last. All the things that we did where, where we did it for ourselves, we did it for somebody else, we did it because other people were watching, those things are going to be burned up. People's lives, their life's work is going to be consumed at that moment. Everything that they thought was valuable and all the effort that they put in is going to be utterly consumed is going to, and is going to be vanished and gone forever. And only what is done for Christ is what is going to last and what is going to be purified. It's a pretty amazing fact. What I think might be interesting about it is is maybe, maybe God will give us a glimpse about everything we could have had. That'll be a sobering thing, wouldn't it? Everything that we could have had if we had just done his will instead of our own will. In the New Testament, there's five areas, I believe, that are mentioned of reward. There's an incorruptible crown for those who get mastery over the old man. There's a crown of rejoicing for soul winners. We have some good soul winners here. A crown of life for those that endure trials. A crown of righteousness for loving Christ's appearing. A crown of glory for being willing to feed the flock of God. You might ask yourself, well, do I care if I'll get a reward? You will care. You will care. Just like you care now if you do well or you don't do well, if your boss is approving of you or he is not, you are going to care when you get to heaven. You say, well, I'm just going to be happy I'm there. I don't think it's going to be like that. I honestly do not think it's going to be like that. There are going to be people who are heartbroken, who are mourning because they could have done more for Christ, but they didn't. I think it has to do as well with, with uh, Revelation 21 and the tears will be wiped away. 
think that has to do probably with some of the people wasting their whole lives and having to stand before a just and holy God, knowing that they could have done more, but they chose not to. What a sobering fact. It should, it should make us want to live right. What I love is Revelation chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 where we get this picture of the elders casting crowns at Jesus' feet. What an awesome picture. There's a lesson to be learned from them casting their crowns. And I think us as well, we're going to be casting whatever we have left, our gold, silver, our precious stones, our crowns. I think we'll be casting them at Jesus' feet as well. And there's, I believe, a reason for that because at that moment when all of our works are put in a pile, and they're burned up, and things are left, we're going to realize at that moment that it wasn't about us that we have that pile of stuff. It wasn't about us that we have a reward. I don't believe we're going to wear gold crowns around heaven for all of eternity and say, ooh, look at me, look what I did, because in that moment we're going to realize it wasn't us, but it was all because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, meaning the best thing that we can possibly offer God is filthy, dirty rags. And when we see see all of our gold, silver, and our precious stones, and our crowns right there, I don't think there's going to be any other response that we can have except go and cast them down right at Jesus' feet. Because we realize it's all because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And if it had not been for him, none of that would have been responsible. So the judgment seat of Christ, I believe, has to do with the glorification of God. Because all the glory goes back to him. It doesn't go to you. It doesn't go to me. And it's going to be a joyous occasion for some. But it's going to be a heartbreaking occasion for others. As they go down and... They have nothing to place at the feet of Jesus. Or a little handful to place at the feet of Jesus. I don't know about you, I want a truckload. I want to make him smile. I want to make him thrilled. I don't want to have regret. I don't want my tears like that to have to be wiped away. I want to rejoice when I get before the judgment seat of Christ. But there's another judgment that we'll talk about for a few moments. The great white throne judgment. Much more sobering than the judgment seat of Christ. It's found in Revelation 20, if you would turn your Bibles there. We'll read five verses. Revelation chapter 20. Gives a description about what is going to be taking place. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse number 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, whose face, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there were found no place for them. And I saw the the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those 
things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell, remember that, death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. In a sobering verse, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. When does the great white throne take place? When does that judgment happen? I believe that that judgment happens after the millennial reign of Christ and Satan is loosed. And for a thousand years, there was a pretty perfect environment. Jesus was leader. Jesus was king on earth. What a wonderful occasion. But the devil is loosed and he goes out and he begins to deceive the nations. And I believe there's a lot of children that were born during that thousand-year time period. Some of them that, had never, that have never been tempted like you've been tempted and like I've been tempted. And the devil is going to go out and deceive them and turn many people away from Jesus. And they're going to try to rise up against him. And of course, you know, it doesn't work out too well for him. And after that is finished and concluded and it's over, that I believe is when the great white throne judgment take, takes place. Who's going to be in attendance? The unsaved are going to be in, the attend, in attendance at this throne. Hitler is going to be there. He will be there. At all the bad he's done, it's going to be a sad day for him. Mussolini, he'll be there. Genghis Kong, he'll be there. Good people are going to be there. Thought about that? Notice I, I, we, we said Hitler, we said Mussolini, we said Genghis Kong, who killed, I believe, like 700,000 people in, I think it was like 30 minutes or something. But good people? Good people. We know that there's none that do with good. We understand that. But in our terminology, good people. Neighbors are going to be at the great white throne judgment. People that we live by are going to be there. Relatives are going to be there in attendance. I think it's safe to say that some people in this room right now are going to be there. I hope not. Some people that are listening over live stream right now going all over the world and going to be listened to many days after this is over, some of them that are listening, they are going to be there. And when we contact these people on door-to-door and in our daily routine, when we run into them, we begin to talk about the things of God and they say, oh, well, I'm just a good person. Yikes. Yikes. People have been trying to get to heaven on good works for thousands of years. People have been trying to reconcile their place with God for works for thousands of years. The first instance we see is, I believe, back in the Garden of Eden. 
The first time man and woman sinned, what did they do? They tried to cover their sins. They tried to to make clothes for themselves out of leaves, and it did not work well. It was not a proper covering. And that is just, I believe, a symbol about what people are still doing today. They're trying to cover up their sin with something that they have produced of their own, but the only thing that can cover their sin and wash it away is the blood of Jesus Christ. Not long after that, we see Cain. Cain tried to do it his way instead of God's way. Many people tried to earn salvation by doing it their way instead of God's way. He offered up an unpure sacrifice, not the way that God wanted it to be done. He wanted a lamb, not a bunch of fruits that he cultivated himself. The Tower of Babel is another great example how people were trying to build a big structure to get to heaven. Little did they know what we know today about what, I mean, they wouldn't have got there. They wouldn't have got there. They wouldn't even have, you know, broken through the atmosphere. How futile that whole endeavor was for them to build this tower to heaven. How futile it is for people to try to live their lives and think that they can just do good things. Oh, I'm taking a block and I'm putting it down. Oh, I did another good thing. I take it and I put my block down. I went to church today. Take your block and you put it down. I read my Bible and I take it and I put my block down. I help my neighbor put your block down. I, 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 I try to be good to everybody. Put your block down. And many people have these big, monstrous, humongous, impressive buildings and statues that think that they're going to get to heaven on but it's futile and it's empty. Because it's not about what we can possibly offer God. By the way, I love what Paul says, I believe in Galatians, and, he, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, you know, if, if we could get justified by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. People who try to, to get to heaven on good works, I always go to that and I tell them, look, I said, if you can get to heaven on good works, God was a fool, and we know that he was not. If salvation could come by any other way, why would Jesus Christ come and suffer the torture, the humiliation, the beatings, the crown of thorns, the whippings that took place, people spitting on him, and him opening up his arms and being nailed to a cross to die? Why in the world would he do that if you could just be a good person? That's not the way it happens. Jesus said, I am the way. The way, meaning that singular. There's not many ways. There is one way. It's through Jesus Christ. You say that's narrow-minded. Yeah, well, that's what the Bible says. The way, the truth. Not, Not Jesus didn't say, I am truth. He said, I am the truth, the only truth. It's found in him and the life. And the only, the only way you are going to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. And it's by the truth that he is. And when you accept that, you get the life. You said that's really narrow-minded. Well, Matthew 7 says, few there be that find it. Says, says broad is the gate that leadeth to destruct, destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. But few there be that find it. 
because narrow is the way and straight is the gate that leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. I hope that you're one of the few today. I hope that you're one of the few today and you found the way through Jesus Christ. When people die, unsafe people die, they go to a place the Bible calls hell. I never enjoy telling somebody that when they die, they are going to go to hell if they do not trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and repent of their sins. I do not enjoy that, but it's the truth. And these people, for a short time, they're going to spend in hell. But after, after this world comes to an end and the whole thing comes to a conclusion, they are going to be taken from hell and stand before Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment to be cast into the lake of fire. You say, well, what, what is that all about? What do you mean hell? I thought hell and the lake of fire was the same thing. They're, they're actually not the same thing. But people are misunderstood, uh, misunderstood often by that. We, we can get a picture of what actually takes place when we look back when Jesus tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man and how that they both died and Lazarus was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom and that the rich man, he was carried into hell. And in hell, he lift up his eyes. When the unsaved die, they go to a place the Bible calls hell. The Old, Old Testament uh, Hebrew word for it is sheol. Sheol is the Old Testament word for it. And in Sheol, there was referred to as Abraham's bosom. And remember the, the rich man, he said he, he, would, he looked and he could see there was a great gulf fixed. Could kind of see, maybe off in the distance, a little bit from the paradise side of hell. Now in our, of course, English translation, we see that even uh, David, he makes mention, he says, um, if, I, if I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell... Thou art there. What is that hell referring to? That was Sheol. That was essentially he's referring to paradise. When he said hell there, he wasn't referring to the fiery place of indignation that unbelievers go. He was referring to the paradise side. The same place, by the way, that Jesus said, uh, Jesus told uh, the thief on the cross when the thief said, uh, Master, remember me when you come into my kingdom. And Jesus, what did he say? He said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That was in hell, the word Sheol, the paradise side of hell. And if after Jesus's after Jesus's death, of course, in Ephesians four we see that he ascended even to the lower parts of the earth and led captivity captive. And we believe that now, when believers die, Paul says, "I'd rather to be absent with the body and to be present with the Lord." And so the paradise side is no longer anymore. We don't save people; don't go there. They go directly into the presence of God. Praise the Lord. But the unsaved the unsaved people they go directly to hell and suffer torment. And their torment is just reprieve for a few moments when they stand before God, I believe, at the great white throne judgment. And he drops the hammer on them, and they're cast into the lake of fire. And death and hell was cast in the lake of fire, which is the second death. What are these people going to be judged on? Simple. And whosoever... And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Why does God have to do this? God seems like a mean God when you think about that. That's what some people say. He thinks like a mean God. I think he knows something about sin that we don't know. I think God sees sin 
worse than we see sin. I think God understands and he knows what kind of contamination sin causes. And he takes extreme measures. And by the way, I'm not one to point the finger at God. Don't you be one either. When we start judging God's methods and God's motives. Again, when we have family members and friends and neighbors and they're cast in a lake of fire for all eternity, again, that's, that's when the verse comes up and he'll wipe away all tears. I don't think we could possibly enjoy heaven and the new earth if we remembered those people being cast into hell. I think he kind of wipes away those memories from our, uh, from our minds so we can have peace and enjoy what he has. But the question today for you is, which judgment are you going to be at? Which judgment are you going to be at? Are you a saved believer and you're going to be at the judgment seat of Christ, or are you lost and on your way to hell and going to stand before God at the great white throne judgment and be cast into the lake of fire? Which judgment will you be at? Everybody in this room, they have the opportunity I believe everybody has the opportunity to be saved. Jesus told the Pharisees, he says, uh, he said, you know, I came unto you, but, but you, didn't, you didn't want me. You chose not to. And everybody in here has a choice. And if God is speaking to you in this moment, and you know that you are without Christ and you are going to spend eternity in a place the Bible calls a lake of fire, get it settled today. You say, well, I don't know how to be saved. How in the world do I be saved? The Bible makes it clear. He says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's as simple as that. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. An easy, a simple example of that is when uh, Jesus, he was telling his disciples, he said, two men went up into the temple to pray. You remember the story? He says, one man, he raised his hands towards heaven and he looked up real high and he said, oh God, I'm so glad that I'm not like everybody else. A lot of people live their lives like that. I'm so glad I'm not like everybody else. And he went on to make this big public spectacle in front of everybody. And then Jesus says, and, but there was a man over in the corner who he was ashamed to even lift his head toward heaven. And he beat on his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He says, who do you think went away justified? The humble man. Do I believe that that man got saved? Absolutely, 100%, without a doubt. What does it take for you to be saved and to avoid the judgment of the great white throne? It can be as simple as that. Realizing that you have offended God, that sin must be paid for, that Jesus Christ paid for your sins, and that he died and was buried and that he rose again. And simply trusting in him in repentance and faith. In Acts, it says repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe it's both repenting of what we've done and we're going to change, but also belief that Jesus is the only way. You can be saved today if God's speaking to you. We'll have a moment of invitation here. If the pianist and the organist, they'd make their way up here. We're going to have a moment of invitation here, and we do this so you have the opportunity to respond. What we would hate is after a message gets brought to you like this, to say, okay, let's go home. No, this is an opportunity for you to respond. And whether you're saved or whether you're lost, there's things I believe that God is probably speaking to each and every one of us at this moment. And what a great opportunity to respond. You can make your way down to the front here. We'll have Pastor Steve here 
and Brother Thomas down here to help you if you need uh, anything. We'll have ladies here if you need somebody to pray with and talk, pray with and talk with. And if you're not sure about salvation and it wasn't super crystal clear to you, we have folks, men with men, women with women, that can talk with you a few moments after service. And so now I'd like us to stand. I'll pray, and then we'll have a moment of invitation. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity to be here today. Thank you that we have received the truth, that we know that salvation only comes through Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. I ask that you'd speak to hearts, even in this moment. May you make the message clearer than I've presented it, that every person would understand and would be faced with the opportunity to make a decision. Give us opportunity to share this message with others. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.